The oil underground in the Osage Nation is gooey and thick and chemical, altogether quite unappealing. But its worth doesn't come from the way it looks and smells. Every barrel of black gold carries wealth. Oh yes, lots and lots of that. It creates value. It lifts up life. A purchasing power for fur coats, mansions, cars, and the chauffeurs who drive them. As it emerges from the ground, the oil is refined, then snakes its way across the land far from its source. It may not glitter, but you can see the cash it creates. With every drop of oil, another shiny coin is added to the purse. But oil wealth often brings along a darker quality of life, one that can make those who desire it lie, cheat, and murder. Hello, David Grand. Great to have you on the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Your book, Killers of the Flower Moon, already a New York Times bestseller, now receiving renewed praise and attention, and a Martin Scorsese movie with DiCaprio and De Niro. Not a, not a normal month in one's life, huh? No, I, not a one I ever expected. <laughs> well, it, it is an astonishing story, rife with amazing history, so here we go. Really, this story begins with the discovery of tremendous deposits of oil under the Osage Reservation in what is today north-central Oklahoma. But... The Osage move to Oklahoma in the 1870s really set the table. They were one of the few Native American nations to purchase their lands. They bought their reservations, sold their previous territory in Kansas to the government under President Grant, then bought in Oklahoma and retained the mineral rights to the land. This was remarkably prescient of them. Did they have any idea of the potential of that land? Yeah. So when they were driven off the reservation, as you say, in Kansas, they did. They eyed this territory in Oklahoma that was about the size of Delaware, um, but it was kind of considered rocky and infertile by white. So the associate chief had said, you know, our people should move there because they'll be happy there and we'll finally be left alone. And so they resettled there and they paid 70 cents per acre. And so, as you said, they had a deed to their land. And then when they were undergoing what was really the culmination of the government's very brutal assimilation campaign, which was allotment, and allotment was a policy to break up American Indians' communal ownership of the land, they inserted into their treaty a rather curious provision, which said, we shall maintain all the subsurface mineral rights to our land. And nobody thought at that time the Osage were sitting on a fortune of oil, but the Osage knew there was some, and they very shrewdly managed to hold on to this last realm of their territory, a realm they could not even see. And then lo and behold, within several years, some of the largest deposits of oil then ever discovered in the United States were found directly under their lands. This is what interests me, because they would know this. I mean, being so close to the land, they would know. I mean, oil, when it's that ready to be drilled, is floating in pools somewhere. You would know about this if you were, it's like the Buddy Epson and, you know, the black gold coming from the earth. They would know this better than anyone. So they would have had some sort of intelligence on the fact that this could be worth a lot of money, this land. Yes, they knew there was oil. They had found some of the Osage, had found along some riverbanks, um, they had found evidence of oil. So they knew there was some there. And very wisely and shrewdly, led by one of their greatest chiefs at the time, a man who spoke seven languages, including French and Sui, they negotiated and put this into their treaty. And so then, 
after allotment, it's important to understand the policy of allotment because after allotment, this was designed to make it easier for white settlers to procure Native American lands. It was harder to do when they were communally controlled. And so after allotment, much of the surface territory disappeared, Osage territory disappeared into the hands of whites. Yet the Osage had created a mineral trust for all the oil wealth underneath the land. And each Osage on the tribal roll, there was about 2,000 of them or so, was given a headright, which is essentially a share in this mineral trust. And a headright could not be bought or sold. It could only be inherited. So even after this surface land disappeared into the hands of whites, the Osage continued to control this territory beneath their land about the size of Delaware. They were really the world's first underground reservation. It goes all the way back with them, too, because they were one of the more formidable tribes to deal with for 150 years before that, you know, in the so-called Indian Wars, right? Very much so. And they had once laid claim to a central part of the country, an area that stretched all the way from Missouri to the edge of the Rockies. Yeah, these were the heavy-duty guys. So in short order, they become enormously wealthy. Tell me how that wealth was managed in this community and outwardly throughout the, the whole society of Oklahoma. Yeah, so the wealth, initially it amounted to, you know, a few thousand dollars, but over time, as more oil was tapped, the Osage received royalties on that oil that was tapped and also for leases. And a lease could sell for as much as $2 million. And in the year 1923 alone, those 2,000 or so Osage received the equivalent today of what would be worth more than $400 million. They were among the wealthiest people per capita in the world. It was said at the time, whereas one America might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. And the Osage had servants, many of whom were white. And this belied long-standing stereotypes of Native Americans that go all the way back to the very brutal first contact. And so this ended up provoking an insidious backlash across the country. Members of the U.S. Congress would sit around for hours and hours. You can read their testimony debating, what are we going to do with these Osage with all their money? And eventually they passed legislation requiring many Osage to have white guardians to manage, imagine this, white guardians to manage their fortunes. And so here you could be an Osage chief leading a nation and you suddenly had somebody telling you what you could purchase. And this system was not abstractly racist. It was quite literally racist. It was based on the quantum of Osage blood. So if you were a more than a half-blooded or a full-blooded Osage, you were deemed quote-unquote incompetent and you were given one of these guardians. And not only was the system racist, it also ushered in one of the largest criminal enterprises as many of the guardians began to swindle millions and millions of dollars. I want to turn the, the story a little bit because that's what's so surprising to me, knowing the, the history. It wasn't purely a patronizing thing we're thinking of. The white community of Oklahoma recognized how smart these people really were. I mean, they absolutely understood how sophisticated these mines were, and they understood how they had secured this wealth. They had to create a system that was going to give them some source of power, right? Yes, and what often happens in these systems is that true motives and true intents are cloaked in paternalism or a sense of progress. I mean, you know, there is this sense, we are helping you. We are like bringing civilization to you. You need us. And meanwhile, you're just stealing left and right. So these systems were really quite nefarious the way they were designed. And they were often cloaked again in this very insidious ideology, which when you read the text, you can recognize. But yes, 
they had to come up with a system. They had to come up with ways to try to get this money. There's a, there was an Osage chief who testified at Congress during one of these hearings and complaining about the guardianship system. And he said something, I paraphrased to the fact of, you know, here we were bunched down on the, you know, the worst piece of land filled with rocks. And now that that land turns out to be filled with all this money, everybody wants to get in here and get some of that money. And sure enough, that's what they wanted to do. They were like buzzards. There's a, a phrase that I ran into called plutocratic Osage. That was interesting. I never knew what that meant. Yes. they've Again, the press was often kind of regaling their readers, again, because it belied these longstanding stereotypes of Native Americans. You know, here the Native Americans had money and they had power and they had agency. And, you know, they suddenly had white servants. And so it provoked, you know, the press was always kind of coming out and regaling their readers with the quote-unquote plutocratic Osage, or they were to them as, and again, this is a racist phrase, but I use it just to show the attitudes. They would refer to them as "quote unquote" the red millionaires. Of course, yeah, arriving to country dances and campfires and, and pierce arrows. <laughs> yeah, they had biplanes. Amazing story. <laughs> At the center of this tale, of course, is the story of one family known as the Burkharts. Uh, Molly Burkhart, an Osage woman married to a white man, Ernest Burkhart, who is himself a nephew of a man well known and trusted in these parts, William Hale. How much of this story, many people have seen the movie by now, how much of this story was a tip of an iceberg of other conspiracies like it in the land? Yeah, it was very representational, which is why I think it's an important one to, and the movie focuses on this relationship, but it tells a much larger story that this criminal enterprise, which it, what's important to understand is that these were inheritance schemes. Because a headright could only be bought or sold, these plots involved people marrying into families to try to steal the inheritance and steal the money. And the relationship between Ernest and Molly is representational of many of these other crimes which happened in other families. I would say the one difference is that the killing in her family was so flamboyantly done and so flamboyantly brutal and called in many ways much more attention to it, where in the other families, they were done usually quietly and drew much less attention. Yeah. So of the authorities into like your book, like the movie, let's focus on this one conspiracy. So William Hale is a very prominent citizen in the country, he right? A, he was a cattle baron who was also a deputy sheriff who campaigned for what he referred to as God-fearing souls. He had arrived in the area as just a dirt poor cowboy, but then he had gradually become this very powerful cattle baron deputized as a sheriff, uh, was really the most powerful white in the area. He was known as the king of the Osage Hills and was considered a friend of the Osage. Right. And so his nephew, Ernest, falls for Molly, right? I mean, this is a, a real romance to begin with. Yes, he is. And the way they meet, so he arrives and he chauffeurs Molly around. He's her chauffeur. He's um, William Hale's nephew. And he drives her around, and from all evidence of the records, they developed a genuine affection for each other. Over what period of time are we talking about? Just after the First World War. So uh, he comes back from the First World War, and I think it's either 1916 or 1917 where they meet. Right. So was he a puppet of William Hale at this point, or did this sort of come to Hale after the fact? This is a question we don't fully know from the historical records. We don't have a definitive answer on that. I mean, he was always under William K. Hale's thumb. The question is, did he marry into the family directly at the design of Hale, or did the plot emerge once they were already married? I should say that among Osage and among Molly's descendants, they believe unquestionably 
Ernest had married in as, at the direction of William K. Hale. It's so nefarious. It's so yeah, dark. So dark. And yet made for the movies. How much were these guys aware of other kinds of plots like this? Was this commonly done in Native American proximity? You know. Well, the Osage Nation, because of the head rights, these crimes were very distinctive because what was common among other nations and among other First Nations was efforts to swindle land and wealth and undermine the sovereign controls that the Native Americans held over their lands. What was very distinctive about these crimes was because a head right, this mineral share, which was essentially, you know, it was worth a fortune because you would get a quarterly check, you know, worth unbelievable sums of money. And because these could only be inherited, they involved these very intimate plots and intimate betrayals where you had people having to marry into the families with the purpose of trying to get that wealth. And that was what made these crimes uh, distinctive. Didn't mean they didn't happen elsewhere, but they happened at a systematic level mm. against the Osage. Thanks to William Hale. The inciting event of the book really is the discovery of the body of Anna Brown, Molly's sister. She's been shot execution style. It's kind of in coincidence, it seems at the time, with the discovery of Charles Whitehorn, who is another individual of Osage origin, also shot execution style. This begins this whole investigation, which in those days was you know, kind of tough to do. There wasn't really law enforcement as we know it today. And that becomes its own plot of the greater story, right? Yes. Right around the same time, these two Osage are found murdered. Molly's older sister, Anna Brown uh, left her house one evening in May in 1921 and then disappears. And her body is found a week later in a ravine and she'd been shot in the back of the head. It was the first hint that uh, Molly's family was being targeted. And Molly would, and other Osage, including uh, people close to Charles Whitehorn, whose body was also found around that same time period, also shot and killed. They would crusade for justice, and I think this is important to understand, as you mentioned. Molly would go around demanding the authorities look into these cases. She would hire private detectives. She would issue rewards. But because she was Osage, because of the deep prejudice at the time, her pleas were ignored. But also, just as importantly, there was not only very poor training in law enforcement at the time, there was widespread corruption and it would turn out that many members of law enforcement were complicit, if not directly, in these crimes in covering up the crimes. These towns, this is Fairfax, one of several that are involved in this tale. How divided were these societies? I mean, you had the reservation, of course, but did you have a very specific and segregated white society then, too? What was happening was these towns were being transformed at such a rapid scale and with such quickness. It was different than in many ways the way towns or areas might get transformed over time. What would happen is, you know, the Osage population, because it had been so decimated over the years of forced migration and disease, amounted to a few thousand people in this area. And then when oil would be tapped in an area or a town that might have several hundred people in it, suddenly Within days, you would have thousands and thousands of whites showing up to work in these oil fields. You would have these towns that they built overnight, like Whizbang. So you had these towns being transformed completely overnight and overwhelmed with whites who were bringing their own culture as well and their own, obviously, nefarious plots as well. 
It's a terrible list. I mean, the people that, are, that die within this one family, it's incredible. You have Anna, you have the mother, the sister, a whole bunch of names I can't go into or we'll lose our way, but uh, it's a remarkable tragedy throughout this family, never mind the entire community. What is now famously known as the Osage murders happened roughly between 1918 and 1926. More than 60 people are suspected to be on this list of murders. It's covered by newspapers all over the country. It's an amazing story. It's incredible that it has only come out, you know, so recently. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that is important to understand. The investigators would eventually come in and they would focus on the murders of Molly's family and they were able to capture William K. Hale and a couple of his henchmen. But what is important to understand is that this was really less a story about who did it than who didn't do it. This was really a story about a culture of killing and a culture of complicity. And if you read the book or you see the movie or you dig into this history, what you will learn is that many people were hiring killers to knock off a spouse in their family to inherit this money. There were doctors who would be going around giving out poisons. There would be these morticians who would ignore evidence of bullet wounds. There were businessmen and oil barons and sheriffs who were either either on the take or complicit because they were just getting wealthy, so they never tried to stop these crimes. And many others who were complicit in their silent, all, all because they were getting wealthy from what they openly referred to as the quote-unquote Indian business. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. And it's narrated by me, Don Wildman, and is direct audio from my TV show, Mysteries at the Museum. On Mysteries at the Museum, I travel across the U.S. to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history, and about the failed invention from World War II that evolved into one of the most popular toys for kids. Objects carry a lot of power. They tell a story about a person, a place, or a time in history. And sometimes they just look like ordinary household objects. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects, and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. I think you'll like this podcast because it's telling every kind of American story through fascinating historical objects. So listen to Mysteries at the Museum wherever you get your podcasts. 
How does the FBI play into this? This is a very famous FBI story. You can watch it in the FBI story starring Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> yes, yes. So in 1923, after the official death toll had climbed, then this is the official death toll climbed to at least 24. And obviously, we now know the death toll is much higher. The Osage Nation issued a tribal resolution pleading for federal authorities to step in because all their other efforts had failed because of local corruption. They had even sent somebody to Washington, D.C hoping he could alert and get federal authorities to step in. And he was abducted from his boarding house in Washington, D.C., and he was then found the next morning stabbed and beaten to death. And the Washington Post had contained a headline that said what the Osage already knew. It said, conspiracy to kill rich American Indians. So in 1923, the Tribal Council issued this resolution, and it was then that the case was taken up by this rather obscure branch of the Justice Department. It was then known as the Bureau of Investigation. Of course, we know it today. It's been renamed as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI. And it would become one of the FBI's first major homicide cases. And that was because the Bureau back then was a pretty ragtag operation, very fledgling, had only a smattering of offices across the country, and had very limited jurisdiction over crimes. But one of the jurisdictions they had was over American Indian lands, these, uh, over reservations. And so that is why this case fell to them. And uh, the Bureau then was being led by a very young new director named J. Edgar Hoover. He was only 29 years old when he became the director. Very much a, a, a bureaucrat. I mean, I'm proudly so. You know, he was a, a numbers cruncher guy type of thing. Clerical, anyway. And he be this becomes a very proud story for them throughout the institutionalization of that agency. To the point, as I say, that they make this major movie that he is even in, incredibly. Do you see J. Edgar Hoover in the movie? Yes, yes. And what they did was they <laughs> sent in, I mean, at first the Bureau completely messes up the case. They they have an outlaw who they hope to use as an informant, and instead he slips away, robs a bank, and kills a police officer. And eventually Hoover turns to an old frontier lawman named Tom White, who puts together an undercover team, including an American Indian named John Wren. And they go in undercover, and ultimately they follow the money. And they were able to capture William K. Hale and Burkhart and another henchman. And Hoover promptly closes the case and kind of declares triumph and uses the case to really burnish the Bureau's reputation. Yet there was this much deeper and darker conspiracy, as we've discussed, that the Bureau never exposed. And so many other perpetrators were never caught. What were the punishments uh, doled out to these guys? Hill should have gotten a life sentence, but he will eventually get released early and uh, paroled. He served about 20 years, and many Osage to this day believe he had kind of called in his last political chit to get out of jail. Uh, so he ended up dying a free man and actually ended up even returning for a brief period, even though he was not supposed to, to Osage County. There were people who saw him there. I interviewed people who had seen him back. Ernest Burkhart similarly serves more than 20 years and then also comes back. But they all were eventually released to the horror and outrage of the Osage that they did not serve their full life imprisonment. And the fate of the Osage community vis-a-vis -vis this oil money, where does that all land them? So much of the wealth was pilfered and stolen and never recovered and hard to pinpoint an estimate. I've heard an Osage chief put them out at about what we worth today, about a billion dollars that was swindled. Hmm. And then oil also eventually dried up. And so even though today those age, some will say still get money from their oil deposits, it's a minimal amount compared to what it once was. But it's very important to understand that history did not stop. 
and that the Osage remain a very vibrant nation today. They have found other sources of income. They've taken measures to protect themselves. They have their own constitution now, their own Congress. There are more than 20,000 Osage with voting rights as citizens. And as an Osage lawyer had told me when I was visiting one time at the dance, she said, you know, we were victims of these crimes, but we don't live as victims. It's an incredibly intricate story. Uh, we're skipping over massive amounts of material here, and that's why you should go buy this book, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI, by this fine author. I've been reading you for years and years in The New Yorker. What's your next book? I'm circling my next new book subject right now, and it's, I'm not yet ready to divulge, but uh, it will deal with some of these similar themes dealing with truth and the nature of truth and how we discern it. You've seen the movie, now read the book. <laughs> Thank you, David Gren. That's my pleasure. Thank you for sharing this history. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of American History Hit. I hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to like, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.